Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM Salmon Software Licensing Professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review. In this podcast, uh, we'll learn about the proof of concepts, RFI, RFP and otherwise any other method of selecting SAM tools. In this podcast, you'll hear from Torsten from Matrix 42, Patrick from iQuate, Phil Merson from Concord, Surjan from Flexera Software, and Sumin from Bellark. So these guys are used to being on the receiving end of people sending out RFIs and RFPs, and it's a fascinating discussion into how to optimize that process and how to strip out the waste and optimize the whole experience so that you end up with the right technology. This is a preview. This podcast is a preview of our upcoming Tools Day on the 20th of November in London. Uh, and at that Tools Day, we actually have uh, Stanislav Pavlin, who uh, is at the Vodafone Group, who will share his experiences of the proof of concept from the other side of the camp, from the actual selection side. So between those two, I'm hoping to share some, some good advice in terms of the selection process. If you're a podcast listener and you have some experiences to share in terms of the proof of concept or the selection process we'd love to hear from you please contact us in the meantime let's dig into it welcome to the iCham review podcast today uh, is, is a preview of our upcoming tools day in november in london and i wanted to dig into the selection process and the proof of concept process for people looking at sam tools so for many organizations uh, selecting a sam tool is a brand new venture or it's it's a new thing to explore. It's, a, it's an up-and-coming market, uh, or for some, it's, they've, it's a well-trodden path and they've, they've been through the process before. But uh, whether, you know, ha- depending on how experienced you are, we'd love to be able to share some experiences from those in the field uh, that are actually on the receiving end of the RFI and RFP process about best practices and how best to select a tool. So we've got a number of professionals on the call today. And so if we start with the selection process, um, one of the reasons that we set up the iChan review back in 2008 in the first place is because there was a there was a dire lack of information about who was out out there in the market you know who were the providers and we were one of the first pages we built on the iChan review was actually just a listing of all the different vendors and suppliers in the market and that still remains one of the most popular pages today so hopefully that's useful for people looking the at the selection process but for those of you on the call have you got any advice so let's say that we're just embarking on the business plan and the selection process I need to start putting out some feelers in terms of what tool to select Um, what would you recommend as a best practice in terms of going about selecting the best uh, tools for your RFI process so perhaps if I could come to uh, Patrick first put you on the spot there Patrick Uh, any recommendations there in terms of building your shortlist yeah, so, so yeah, Pat, Patrick Gunn here from iQuate. Um, I, I think the, the, the difficulty for the customers um, initially is really to actually understand, you know, there are so many companies out there. It's really being able to differentiate what each of those companies does. Um, you know, I think as we all know, there is no one tool to fit an entire requirement. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of customers need to, you know, first of all, sort of really understand what, what the organizations do, what their requirements are, and then try when they go out and do a selection process to get actually a pretty good mix of organizations. Some will specialize in certain things, 
some will, will, will claim to be able to cover the entire environment or the entire process that they're looking at. But I think it's really important that people you know, um, actually get a good selection, a good breadth of, uh, you know, of, of, of suppliers in to be able to you know, really understand what the makeup is going to look like at the end. And it, it won't necessarily come from one vendor. You know, it could come from multiple vendors, but really be you know, clear about what the requirements are and then you know, potentially break that down with different vendors being able to offer you know, different parts of that. Um, I think that, that's one of the most important pieces. So do you find yourself uh, in RFIs whereby there's inappropriate tools in there? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say inappropriate, but I think that, um, you know, often, you know, the, the RFIs, you know, we, we see can sometimes, you know, be, um, uh, you know, not clear exactly about what the requirement is and can sometimes be made up of different different people's inputs from their own organizations and potentially external. Um, and I think that, you know, that sometimes the customer thinks that, you know, they're expecting one response to cover everything when actually, I, you know, I don't think it's realistic for one response to cover absolutely everything in there. So, you know, it's, it's important that I think the customer looks at it and says, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I'd like to achieve. Almost, you know, this is what the art of the possible is, you know, from, from looking at, you know, my requirements. And then when the, when the vendors respond, really look at which pieces match very closely to that and, and not necessarily be tied to the fact that I want one solution to cover everything um, because I just don't think that's realistic. Yeah. Martin, it's Phil Merson here from Concord. I think Patrick's absolutely correct, but I think it starts even earlier than that. I think a lot of the RFIs that we're seeing now have uh, been, well, they're being cobbled together from, uh, as Patrick says, a multitude of different people in an organization. I think sometimes uh, it's, it's better for some of these organizations to take some advice before they even start down the RFI route to understand what requirements they actually do need. Because it does seem, as Patrick says, that they are trying to put every requirement into an RFI now, uh, a lot of which is not a direct requirement for them, but they seem to include it in an RFI just for the sake of including it. And I think that is a mistake on behalf of the customers. I think there needs to be a little bit more advice available for them to actually build an RFI out from the start. So why do you We're think... Also seeing Sorry, what, Sorry, why, no, why, why yeah. do you think that additional bits and pieces are, are in there in the first place? Is that because it's been copied and pasted from somebody else's RFP or because it thinks they think they need that? Why, why do you think that's in there? I, I think uh, RFI information is, is pretty available now. And I think uh, a lot of the procurement side are putting together the RFIs without fully understanding what their business requirements possibly are. Let's face it. They, no real organization has a has an in-depth understanding of the software asset management market than the tool vendors and, and uh, obviously advisors as well in the tool uh, marketplace. So in an organization which is putting out an RFI for the first time, they will put together or collate information from as many sources as possible, including your website, obviously, the ITAM review. I'm not saying that's bad, but they are accumulating information which potentially is not of necessarily use for them in for their requirements for their SAM uh, program. Yeah, Martin, this is Simon with Bellarc. Uh, I couldn't agree more with uh, uh, Patrick and uh, Phil. Um, you know, the, the first thing that we see in a successful RFI is an organization that's really thought about their own structure and what their own needs are, rather than just, you know, putting everything into the bucket. And, uh, you know, as we all know, they're 
you know, as they say, horses for courses, right? So, you know, there's different tools, different solutions for different approaches. And, you know, for example, is it a large global enterprise uh, with worldwide assets that, that need to be discovered and, and then managed? Or is it more of a local organization that, uh, you know, is looking at a few data centers? So very, very different kinds of requirements. And really the, uh, the customer needs to find someone you know, maybe like yourself, to sit down and talk, you know, what is my structure, what are my objectives here, and then just to focus on those in the RFI rather than, you know, as the other guys have said, you know, throwing everything into the bucket and uh, hoping something comes out. Yeah, this is Thorsten from Matrix 42, so <clears throat> I completely agree with all of the others um, that have already spoken about it. Uh, it seems to me, so I've seen RFIs with hundreds of questions regarding features, <clears throat> and I strongly believe that it's not really the goal to um, compare features. Um, I think it's more important that any organization first explains their situation and their, their goals in terms of software asset management, not looking at particular features of the tools and then rather understand possibly um, inform by information about the philosophy of different tools, different approaches on a higher level. I think that's more appropriate to really make pre-selection and then when having done the pre-selection, then having a closer look into certain features. So from, from high level to low level. Hi, Sergeant from Flexera. Uh, well, I agree with uh, what the uh, previous, uh, you know, speakers have uh, said. I think the focus really has to be on the uh, on the business outcomes. So, uh, you know, if I was somebody uh, drawing up uh, an RFI or an RFP document, I would look at, uh, uh, you know, the my business objectives and the outcomes I'm looking to achieve, uh, and then I would then construct questions uh, that will be pertinent and relevant to the business outcomes that you know uh, I need to get. So what, what, uh, just so, you know, so, creating a, a, a sorry. So so what's an example of an outcome? Uh, like, do you mean like a vendor-specific outcome, like Oracle, or do you mean it could, uh, it could be mean? a vendor-specific outcome? It could be uh, uh, in order to get to a uh, you know higher level of uh, you know uh, maturity, uh, uh, you know, in terms of asset, uh, software asset management, uh, uh, in terms of uh, you know being uh, you know ready uh, you know uh, for an audit. Uh, uh, within a specific time frame, uh, you know, whether I want to cover my desktop estate or whether I need to cover my server estate, uh, you know, uh, if it is a server estate, you know, what exactly, which vendors I'm, uh, I'm looking at. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, different, uh, uh, you know, business outcomes that, you know, I might be looking uh, uh, at, you know, in the short, medium and long, uh, you know, time frame and on the basis of what I'm trying to achieve and what I need to achieve, then I will draw up, uh, you know, a list of questions uh, that will help me differentiate uh, between uh, the different suppliers and vendors, uh, you know, who will be, you know, bidding for, for business or who are bidding to help me, you know, with my business problem. Sorry, Sir Jenny, it's, it's, it's Patrick from iQuay. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the clearest RFIs, and I think the most, you know, the most successful ones that we've seen are where, you know, it is tied to a specific business outcome, um, you know, be that, you know, a, a specific vendor. I mean, I think... You know, trying to sort of design something to, to increase your level of maturity is probably is more difficult. Uh, you know, I think when when the you know when the outcome is very focused around um, you know a, a, a business goal, you know, it's 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 either to reduce risk around certain you know vendors or it's to you know reduce cost or whatever it might be. I think when it's tied to that, 
it, it makes the questioning you know much much clearer it makes the you know the outcome I think when the vendors respond much clearer because it's very easy then to understand what each vendor is actually saying they can or can't do and I think when you when you then take that RFI response and naturally you know the next process being you know you want to look at those vendors and probably move towards a proof of concept it makes that much easier when you're putting the criteria together for that proof of concept because you link it back to the business goal that the RFI was written around or the RFP was written around and what your result you're looking for ultimately out of the project. Uh, it, it's Sergeant again. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you, Patrick. But uh, I would also, uh, as an additional point, you know, I would urge uh, you know clients uh, to uh, obviously they do uh, their own research. Uh, you know, go on the internet. You know, talk to you know analysts, uh, uh, whoever. But I would also you know urge them to talk to you know potential vendors after they've done their own research, uh, because you know there will be things that uh, you know they will not be aware of. Uh, and as part of this dialogue with uh, potential bidders and potential vendors, you know they will be able to do clarify in their own minds, you know what is important to them and how to construct the RFP. Uh, just you know dropping an RFP on you know somebody's desk, which could potentially have you know hundreds or thousands of questions, uh, you know, uh, is something that uh, you know vendors may look at and they will you know ask themselves, you know, what is the relevance of all these questions because it's difficult just from the you know, from hundreds of questions to deduce exactly what you know the uh, you know the customer is trying to achieve from the business uh, perspective. Yeah, and everybody is in this business to try and help them. Sorry, to is to help them. You know, uh, uh, you know, achieve these uh, business objectives. And if you are not sure, you know, what they are, or they are not clear, you know, from uh, uh, you know the, uh, the long list of questions, uh, then it is uh, kind of difficult to uh, you know design a solution and come up with a uh, you know proposal uh, through tooling. Uh, you know, uh, professional services, you know, consultancy, how to achieve it. What we are seeing now is more RFIs, RFPs than we've ever seen before. Uh, since we've been uh, working as in this industry, or I've been working in this industry since the late 90s, we've seen very few RFIs come up to now where virtually every organization is going out with an RFI followed by an RFP. And it's, it's an overkill. I mean, it's, uh, our, our salesman has uh, related to us recently. We came from a large uh, software uh, reseller. Uh, and he said he's never seen the, the throughput of RFIs as there are at the moment in the SAM industry. And I just wonder whether this is because there is a lack of understanding, still an enormous lack of understanding of our industry, and that people are having to go through it because of that lack of understanding. Or perhaps there's actually a lack of uh, advice that they can actually gain to actually allow themselves to go into uh, a formal SAM program. Now, the RFI process is a, a way of gathering information, but it doesn't necessarily gather the right information for these organizations. As Patrick said earlier, the, the most successful ones that we're seeing as well are, are RFIs which are very specific around their drivers and goals. But every single RFI we get, we thought we could create templates to actually answer a lot of these RFIs, and you just can't. There's a lot of repeatable questions, but an awful lot of these questions are have to be rewritten every single time. I just think that is that is a position that we've got to where not the industry is growing, but just perhaps there's a lack, still a lack of awareness within the organisations that are trying to, trying to pitch these RFIs to to our industry. There. This is Torsten from Matrix 32, Phil. It's a very good point. I think I agree with you that <clears throat> there's a lack of understanding what a SAM tool needs to be and what are the business requirements. And 
But I'm just wondering why this is, because I believe that a company usually does not compile an RFI itself. So usually there are consultants involved. And I'm wondering why consultants do not a job of consulting the business about the goals and what is really important, but just possibly copying their RFI from the last project, uh, providing it to the new one. I think that's that's too easy. I mean, a company and everyone in a company wouldn't choose a car that is buying by the specification of the car vendor. Because he would think why I'm needing a car, what I want to do with the car, what is important uh, in terms of uh, <clears throat> comfort and, and things like that. So I think that's, that's uh, something that the consultant level should rethink and adjust their well their could work. i could i ask answer that directly torsten as, as an organization that we do help companies um, build rfis is that um you, yeah. don't, you, you don't want to assume that matrix 42 or any other tool does what you've always assumed that it does that's why you keep the rfi so open is because uh you don't want to assume uh, and make assumptions on behalf of the client that they're going to be exactly the same tool that we looked at last time. You got you want to give them the benefit of the doubt that things have moved on, they're innovating, and they're building new stuff. That's why you keep it open-ended at the RFI stage. This, this is Sue Min Martin, but uh, you know, probably to pat you on the back, you, your your RFIs are quite different than most of the ones we see. You know, you, yours are really much more broad-focused. Uh, they're much more goal-oriented. Uh, and we see a lot of RFIs which have very preconceived notions of how this should be done, and, and they're very quite rigid about the kinds of features that they're looking for, rather than focusing, as we've talked about, on the goals and the organization objectives. Um, they're they're really focused on you know what we would say are you know smaller features, uh, important features, but it's it's a mishmash. So. You know, there, there's a, such a broad spectrum of RFIs, and I would say yours de definitely come out on the, you know, more more um, overall objectives view, and how do we meet these objectives? And then we see many others that are that are just feature oriented, and uh, have a very predefined uh, canned structure, if you will. So, so could uh, I? So it's, Sorry. Martin, I, I've got an, I think I've got a, a point which I'd like to make. It's Phil Merson again. I think if if an RFI is, is there to gain information from a vendor. As far as we would be concerned, it's more important for that customer to give us more information to be able to answer an RFI correctly. So a lot of the time you're answering, answering an RFI from a, a blind perspective or a very generic perspective, but every customer has different goals, as everybody has already said. But if you don't know what that customer's topology is like or their technical architecture, where the data sources are coming from for the discovery and for entitlement, if you don't have all the granular information, it's very difficult to give a comprehensive and accurate RFI back to that customer, which they can actually take back to their business for, for shortlisting or whatever that might be. So I think there's, there, there's perhaps an effort that ought to be made to actually get the customers to understand that how to pre prepare an RFI for uh, vendors like ourselves and everybody on the call, because to answer it blindly or generically is, is a poor way to actually take an approach on, on answering an RFI. 
Yeah, it's Sergeant from Flexera. Actually, you know, when you are blindly answering an RFI, you are actually making an awful lot of assumptions about the customer environment in order to provide a positive answer. Uh, and you know, the answers always come with some sort of a caveat, and uh, uh, you don't know whether that is uh, really what the customer is looking for, or you know, whether you or them are thinking the same thing. So, so, so if we could, if we could look at uh, the the typical RF, RFI or RFP process, and I'm sure you can all think of clangers and um, bad and good ones that are across your desk. Um, the the things that spring to mind are sometimes we hear that uh, an RFP has been built for a certain vendor, and you'll open it up and you think, well, hang on, this is this is steering so far towards a specific product that we're not going to go near it or it's asking so much detail that it's, it's just an awful lot of work uh, and, the, and the client's not really considered their outcomes. What, what, what advice, apart from specifically looking at business outcomes, what advice would you give to help people sharpen up their RFI process, make it more valuable to you and, make, and therefore make it more valuable to the client? So it's, uh, it's Patrick from, from iQuay. Um, I think one of the key things is, is, is to have engaged with the vendors that you're going to be sending it to before you send it. Um, you, know, the you know, the number of times that, you know, if one appears completely blind, you just look at it and think, well, that's been built for somebody else. You know, what, what, we haven't been engaged in this. We, we've not spoken to this customer. You know, therefore, you know, either the response, you know, what, you know, some people will choose not to even respond when, you know, I'm sure the customer wants as many responses so that they can actually really gauge that. But, you know, I think engaging with the vendors that you plan to send it to so that, you know, to, to Phil's point, you know, if the, if the data can't be captured in the RFP about, you know, all the information that the vendors need, at least you can have had some of those conversations beforehand so that when the RFP arrives, you can, you can see that. But I think the other thing is, you know, yeah, we, we see RFPs where, you know, specific, you know, actual kind of trademarked features from other vendors are called out in that RFP. And again, you then, you know, you then realize that that's been written you know, either from, from data from that vendor or, or you know, that, that company has done a lot more research on that particular vendor. So, again, I think, you know, probably for, the, for customers not to be, be channeled and make it, you know, look very specific for, for a certain vendor would be key. And I think or or be copied from another, another RFI. <laughs> or another RFI, yeah, no, absolutely, Phil. Um, but also, you know, um, I think being clear about what the criteria is for how that, that RFP is going to be reviewed, actually, and how that, you know, you know how 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 will the answers to these actually be reviewed? What are the important things? You know sometimes they're scoring. You know metrics are within an RFP, but often not. So you know it's really difficult for I think for a vendor when responding to to, to understand well how is my response going to be viewed? If I say no to this particular this this particular feature because I don't do it, but you know what it's not that important. Is that you know how is that going to be reviewed? So I think putting the the criteria. Or being clear about how the criteria for measurement is going to be is going to be called out is important as well. So, Phil again, I think as an example of that, Martin, because I, I think an example would be good to actually put into the, the perspective here. We recently lost a, uh, an RFI, um, and we asked the the customer to come in and give us uh, the reasons why we lost it, and. It was very, very interesting to get it from the customer's perspective rather than just losing it and not knowing exactly why you potentially lost it. But the fact is that these procurement people actually do have different uh, motives sometimes and different ways of scoring, as Patrick says. What we were uh, 
led to believe that uh, one of one of the uh, responders to the RFI had put C question C answer for question X Y Z beforehand, and they said as soon as they did that once, we discounted them. And I said, well, that's a, a, a bit of a sort of brash way of uh, scoring a, an RFI. And they said, well, we didn't want to go through loads and loads of pages looking back at previous questions. But you know, that that's the sort of thing that uh, you know you would never. Uh, usually come across but actually speaking to the customer they do have different ways of scoring it and I think can i can I, I i would agree with that actually because sometimes when you're helping the client make that selection you don't look at the rfi sequentially you might jump back and forth between different vendors and look at us you know if it's an excel sheet you'll look at a specific cell for that response so it is particularly annoying to then get pushed to another cell uh, which might not be relevant. So I, I sort of agree with them there. I, I'm not disagreeing. It's just knowing that that's the type of uh, methodology they might be using. And I think there are different methodologies that are out there for scoring RFIs. There must be. Yeah. Uh, you must score RFIs quite, quite often, Martin. But it was interesting hearing from the procurement uh, uh, team how they particularly score. But I think there are protocols that uh, they do follow generally, don't they? And another, another pet peeve, uh, and this is... Um, just an admin thing really but if you send out an excel sheet for the rfi or rfp and then they send it back in a different format like a pdf and then you have to wrangle with that and i know that's a really silly little thing but it just adds a little bit of friction to your proposal and it shouldn't because it should be based on the technology but it does so I can understand the uh, um, uh, that there are uh, you know certain rules and that uh, you know you should respond in the way you know how you've been asked to respond. But I think you know uh, uh, I think we, we we mustn't allow or the clients you know at least that would be my suggestion they mustn't allow the the formality of the process to stand in the way of them making the right decision. Uh, you know in their uh, you know tool selection process you know to to pick the best tool. Or tools that will, uh, you know, help them uh, achieve their business objectives. Yeah. You know, I, I, if I, yeah. I think you're right in exactly what you're saying, but I think you'll find that with procurement becoming more involved in the, the selection process, they're being more rigorous and quite harsh in the, the way they actually determine who's going to be shortlisted. I think it's a, it's quite a draconian methodology. So, so I'm not, uh, you know, uh, you know, denying that that is, uh, you know, uh, happening or not happening. Or arguing with that, you know, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, uh, if I were selecting, you know, the best tool or the best uh, anything, uh, you know, it will be based on, you know, my needs. And although in the whole process, I might get annoyed that, uh, you know, somebody perhaps didn't do, you know, an excellent job in a certain area or didn't follow exactly the, uh, you know, uh, the process. Uh, uh, my overall objective is not that the, uh, you know, process per se is followed from beginning to end, uh, but, you know, it would be that, uh, you know, I'm looking to, uh, you know, you know, fix my business problem, and in order to do that, I really need to pick, you know, the best tool or the best anything that, you know, will help me actually achieve my business objective. I, so I wish I that was the case, yeah. <laughs> but I'm yeah. not sure it is. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a conversation about what we feel, you know, uh, you know, would be, uh, you know, uh, appropriate, and what advice we can actually make to other people who are making a, uh, you know. Uh, a decision about which tools to, uh, to select. One, I think one, you're just offering my perspective. One, yeah, one, getting one, closer to the people that are setting up the actual RFI is, is most important. 
I think it was Patrick who mentioned, you know, you need to know who you're talking to. And I think that is imperative because it's not always the same people that you may have actually initiated discussions with. It's, it's a completely different set of people in these organizations that are actually taking the, the actual RFI through to completion. So you're talking to people who don't necessarily understand business at all of uh, the software asset management, but just going through the scoring methodology of information. Another example to share with you is uh, we were doing one uh, in Germany and we wanted to work with a vendor in in that space, uh, but we didn't have a contact in Germany. So we went through another country and the the provider wasn't able to connect with the German subsidiary quick enough. And the client rejected that supplier outright just because they didn't have the wherewithal to actually communicate internally. So it's nothing to do with the technology whatsoever, just because that was a reflection of their professionalism. Um, so I'd, I'd just be... That's my indication of draconianism in the way as in the RFI selection process. Perhaps, but it's also a reflection of that company, isn't it? It's, um, it's brutal. So, yes, so, 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 so using your your um, recommendation that actually why don't you engage with the supplier, don't go in cold with an RFI, but actually engage with them beforehand. So if you had a meeting with a prospect and they said, look, we're going to be doing an RFI soon, just to let you know, we just wanted to have a chat with you beforehand, what sort of things should they bring to the table for, for you to produce a productive meeting for them? What things do you want to know about? If you've got to the stage of getting that close, because usually when an RFI hits your table, you're not aware of that RFI beforehand. So when an RFI can, can, tends to come out, you don't have that connectivity with the customer. They've already pulled the shutters down. Um, but if you do have that ability to do so, then there's an enormous amount of information that I think the customer can provide, uh, which we go into post-RFI, unfortunately, rather than pre-RFI, which is a type of workshop and gathering of information about them about how far and how wide this is going to be, what their priorities are, what their drivers are, as has already been discussed, but getting far more information from them to be able to answer the RFI with accuracy and with meaning as well that will actually have an effect for them. Yeah, I think just to come in with Bill Arc, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the RFI, Mark, <coughs> we see is just part of the process, right? So. If an RFI just comes over the, over the railing, you know, as people have said that that's that's limiting. But if you can engage with the customer and 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 us vendors early on, and the customer can can definitely find out more methods, more uh, opportunities, more uh, ways of solving that problem, make up their own minds. Uh, the vendors can find out more about the customer's environment and 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 think about the best ways to address their needs. Then you make the RFI. You know those those have been the, the more successful um, uh, engagements that we've seen uh, by far from from the uh, from the customer's point of view, frankly. Yeah, it's it's, it's Patrick from Ikeway. Um Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even even just to be able to understand, you know, what's the objective? You know, what, what what's the business driver that's actually you know you know starting to engage them in this process where you know the RFI will be one part of it. But I think. You know, the, the, the customers will get far more from the construction of that RFI if they've had more choice, if you like, and more understanding of what how different people could could address their issue or, or you know solve their business problem. I think they you know they would get far more from it, and and you know um, the responses would be better and enable them to actually make you know decisions about whether you know I want to go in this direction or I'm going to maybe combine two or you know two or three of these 
these vendors together. We, we did a an RFP response for a customer um, where you know we responded on our own. Um, you know we couldn't solve everything that was within the RF, RFP, but we responded on our own. Um, and actually, the customer decided to to actually join us together with another vendor because they felt that you know they liked the piece that we were offering, but they knew we couldn't do everything to to solve their problem. But another vendor could solve other parts of their problem. And actually, we were successful together. Um, you know, and, and solve this customer's problem, and you know, that customer's now, you know, is, is now a customer, um, and and being very successful. So I think they were able to because they'd met with a number of the vendors and explained what their problem was and explained explained what their outcome they were looking for. They were actually able to look at the RFP responses and really dig down to the detail of understanding, you know, how you know I quote for instance a bid to, to you know to solve that problem. And then joined us together with with other other vendors to solve it. So I think that that's a, a really good case of doing that. I guess just based on what you, your feedback so far, gentlemen. I guess also having this pre meeting also could save the client and yourselves uh, a lot of time in terms of the RFE. You know, because you could you could potentially withdraw yourself from the process, saying, "Look, this is completely irrelevant for us," and then both parties don't have to go through all the paperwork. Or, or vice versa, you know, you could actually come back with a much, lot stronger offer than you would have uh, with a blind RFI. So it's definitely something to consider. So, so moving on to the um, the RFP or the the proof of concept process. Um, first of all, any views on the proof uh, of doing a proof of concept in the first place? Is it your experience that most people these days are doing a proof of concept, or are they skipping that and going straight off of the uh, RFP response and diving straight into the technology. No, I think um, it's, it's sorry, it's Patrick from Iquate. I, I think um, you know ev every customer, you know, uh, you know, should go through a proof of concept exercise. Um, you know, I, th I think that to go straight from you know an RF an RFP response, as we've all talked about, how those RFP responses will be read differently by different people. Um, you know, you, your answer to certain questions may not really be what the what the you know the customer was looking for, or may have been interpreted differently. I think that you know a key part of any process is to do a proof of concept. Um, you know, I, I think a proof of concept is about building you know building trust. Um, you know, not only in the solution but also trust in the organisation. Um, you know, I think it it can help a customer you know to really solidify their thoughts around the business case. Um, because it, it isn't just about testing the technology, it's also about testing whether the business case you've made for, for that solution to fix your business problem, whether that outcome is going to be realized. So, you know, I think that, you know, a, a proof of concept is, is a vital step and it's certainly one that we encourage, you know, all of our customers to go through and, and to go through, you know, frankly, as early as possible because, you know, I, I talked about, you know, building the art of the possible from the solution, you know, often during a proof of concept, you know, we find a customer will actually say, wow, I had no idea that actually you could solve this other problem we've got here, you know, that, that the RFP maybe didn't go through, but you can solve that because I can see how that technology can be used within my organization. So I think that if you, you know, it, it, it's it's such an important part of the, of the process that, you know, I, I would encourage every customer to do it. And I'd encourage every customer to do it with not just one solution either, you know, to do it with with multiple solutions. And I know that that can be time-consuming for a customer, but I think that it's a, it is a vital step. And you know, as vendors, we have to make that as easy as possible for the customer to to be able to do that proof of concept. You know, it, it should be something that's done in in a day. Um, you know, a day, maybe two days. 
um, so that you know the customer has the ability to be able to look at multiple technologies. Because I think it's the only way that you'll really get a fair comparison and show how suitable that that solution is for your environment. You're, you're absolutely right. Sorry, uh, Merson Concord. I think you're right, Patrick. I think also though, proof of concept is a preparation time for a customer to understand not just about the tool that they're going to engage with in the future. It's all about where their data sources are coming from, how they're actually going to compile this data going forward, how they're actually going to move from a, a development uh, POC into a production, into business as usual. Because um, I, th I think at the time of the POC, a customer is still completely, not completely unaware, but very unaware about how complicated this process actually is and what they really need to gather to actually make it a success, not just yeah, from absolutely. a tool perspective, but from a from a data perspective, from all the different data sources they're going to get, no no one customer we've ever dealt with has one discovery tool set of data. They have usage data. They have data coming from undiscoverable usage users, uh, Active Directory, wherever it might be. They are not aware at that stage what they need to to bring to the party for a proof of concept. And I think that's what a proof of concept should be for. It should be for getting a customer ready to actually take on a, a full set program. Yeah, and the organization, I think, as well. It's not, as you say, it's not just the technology and understanding all the things. It's about how aligned is their own organization to this, exactly. which exactly. which parts of the business are going to need to be involved and which parts are going to be impacted. And actually showing the, the solution to representatives from those different businesses can actually help that customer to get sponsorship and buy-in, you know, because it's, it's not just oh, another piece of technology that won't work or whatever. It is actually, wow, I can see that. I can see that with my data. I can see that in our environment. And, you know, I think it really helps customers to get a wider acceptance of that. I, you I, know, think, inside I think you're absolutely right. But it also settles their mind in, in respect to how they can actually go forward with this. And I think a lot of customers, I don't know whether this is the same for everybody on the call, but a lot of customers underestimate, massively underestimate the task they're taking on. Um, they're thinking a tool is going to be a, a golden bullet and, or silver bullet and it's going to solve all their problems. But I think and, until they actually get it going and realize the undertaking they're actually going to go through, they usually are under-resourced physically and uh, financially to actually take on a proper software asset management program. Slightly disagree with uh, you know what's been uh, said now. I, I, I do agree, Sergio uh, from Flexera. I, I uh, accept that every customer needs a proof point. Uh, or there could be multiple proof points, uh, but just to think that a, a proof of uh, a concept is a silver bullet, uh, I think it's a mistake. Uh, no proof of concept uh, will answer all the questions, uh, technical questions that a customer may have. Uh, you know, you could go into a customer, let me just give you an example. You can go to a customer and, you know, and they say, yeah, let's do a proof of concept. I'll give you so many desktops and so many servers, and then, you know, you show us, you know, your tool, your features and functions. Uh, uh, for starters, that doesn't answer the question, uh, you know, that these, uh, you know, few uh, uh, desktops and servers, it, it's not obviously their entire estate. Uh, and, you know, if a tool works with 10 servers and, uh, you know, 100 desktops, uh, what guarantee do we have that the system is going to scale to, you know, 100,000 machines, for example? So, you know, there are, there are so many things that the proof of concept, you know, cannot uh, uh, so much uncover, but, you know, do you need proof points? Absolutely. It could be a combination of a proof of concept. It could be a combination of evaluation. Uh, it could be a, uh, you know, combination of, uh, you know, actually talking to customers 
who have implemented a similar solution, uh, uh, you know, which is you know, from the scalability point of view, you know, similar to yours, uh, that will give you a degree of confidence that, uh, you know, that can be replicated in your environment. And then for your own proof of concept, you will focus on the differences and the deltas uh, between your environment, your setup, uh, and somebody else's. Uh, set up and then focus on these uh, elements to give you a peace of mind that that technology will work in your environment. So, so I think it's worth um, clarifying uh, what our proof of concept is. So in my mind, uh, it, it, there's an evaluation, which does this thing work technically? Does it work in, the envi- in our environment? And then there's a proof of concept, which is, go, is, a, is setting out to test whether the technology satisfies the outcomes that you put in the RFI in terms of business outcomes. Does it, does it prove, does it, does it meet the meet the goals that we're looking to achieve, or begin to show that it's it's moving in the right direction? Do you do you all agree? With- I can give you uh, input regarding the proof of concept. So what I usually see is, of course, um, there needs to be some evaluation of technical data, just like inventory and other things. But I think what is more important is actually how does the tool um, fit to the process? How do the people work in the use cases with the tool? And I. I see some tendency that uh, proof of concept focuses on on technical interfaces, data import, data export, and all that stuff. But I think it's it's more important that all the users that have to work with the SAM tool actually have the chance to do so. It's just like a test drive. So do they like the look and feel? Do they are can they work with the tool? Do they understand the tool? I think that's one thing that's possibly neglected. Sumin. Yes, thanks, Martin. Um, yeah, we, we've seen lots of different proofs of concepts, and we, we really recommend, uh, as someone else said, uh, that uh, customers, uh, prospects, do it as early in the process as possible, because it's um, you know it's usually uh, enlightening to them, and 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 uh, as they say, they they start learning more about what's involved, what the process is, and you know we've had um, enterprise customers that uh, ending up worldwide enterprise customers but we've started just deploying within a you know division of that of that organization and and they've used it for a year so you know so proof of concept can be run in a lab which is you know somewhat limiting or they can be run in a real environment you know so you can you can run on say 10,000 machines say the organization may be you know 100,000 but you can run on 10,000 run in that division they can see how it actually works in in in, in a real environment and uh you know, people can actually try and, and, and roll out. They can see how the company, and again, as people have said, it's it's not just a product. It's also how the company interfaces with that company, uh, with the customer, uh, which is really, really important as reaching the goals. You know, can you can you quickly answer questions that come up? Uh, you know, are they, are they meeting their objectives? Um, you know, so how difficult was it to implement this? The question of semantics, but uh, as, uh, you know, what Martin was saying, the proof of concept has actually become a catch-all for different types of, uh, you know, technical activities, uh, and it could be uh, as, as simple as a, uh, you know, customized demo with maybe customer data. It could be what we uh, would traditionally call a proof of concept lasting, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks. Uh, it could be a proof of value. So it's not so much about uh, uh, test driving and seeing features and functions of the tool and the graphical user interface, but the outputs and uh, giving a, you know a customer uh, a warm feeling that uh, you know they can actually achieve these uh, you know uh, business outcomes in a subset of their environment. 
it could be a you know longer evaluation which starts with an installation in uh, in a custom environment you know all the technology with a training course and then they want to be left alone for a uh, which i do not advise but you know they want to be left alone for days or weeks to uh, try it by themselves or it could be uh, what has just been described uh, uh, pretty much a pre-production pilot so uh, a phase zero phase one of an implementation so you know lasting for months and months and uh, uh, you know, install it in an environment running for, you know, a period of, uh, you know, weeks or months uh, and then uh, build upon that. So, you know, yeah, all I mean, of I, these I, are described as POCs. I, I yes. suspect though that, that the reason that, that, you know, a company like the one that we're talking about here is, has gone for this kind of very elongated process is, is because, you know, typically they've, they've been burnt before with solutions that have, you know, promised to deliver and, and have ended up not delivering. And I think that a lot of the time it's in the complexity. It's, you know, pr proof of concept sometimes are done, you know, it's, you know, as, as you said, Sergeant earlier, it's, you know, it's a few desktops, it's a few servers, and then a proof of concept run on those is never really going to prove anything because, you know, that's the easy stuff. You know, we, we encourage our customers to, you know, when you do a proof of concept, do the really difficult things, do the, 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 the stuff that you've not been able to do before, do the stuff that's highly complicated. Because that will actually, you know, show you that you know the solution that you're looking at is is going to be able to issue the hard, you know, deal with the issues of the hard stuff in your business. I completely I agree with you, Patrick. People, yep. Yeah, people don't have to then do an elongated process because it, it's that's more from a scared type type of you know situation where they're thinking, you know, we, we've had all these other tools, they've not addressed what we need needed to do. So almost, you know, we'll run a pre-production pilot, call it a proof of concept, but really it's. It's it's much more than that, and I think it comes from a position of you know not getting what they wanted from from other solutions. So you know choose the difficult, choose the hard things, and and you know see how those vendors cope with that because that's going to be a really good indication yeah. of how you know you'll actually end up rolling this out and where those problems will be because eighty percent will always go you know incredibly well. It's that last twenty percent that will be where the solution lives or dies on its own. So, so if you are a list of success criteria, uh, you know, uh, once you've been through a number of, uh, uh, you know, vendors, has got the ticks against all of them, then, you know, your list of success criteria was, you know, pretty poor. And, uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, process of running this POC has not actually helped you much in selecting the right vendor uh, to address your business issues. So, you know, so, I guess you're arguing, Patrick. You know, try you know test things which are important uh, and that are unique to your environment, or uh, or something that you have stumbled uh, you know uh, upon before, uh, rather yeah. than just do a run-of-the-mill uh, you know basic stuff. So, Absolutely. So to your point, Patrick, then perhaps you, if your main pain points that you've identified in the RFI are Oracle and Microsoft virtualization, then you tackle those head-on in the proof of concept rather than doing something soft and cuddly like adobe on the desktop uh, yeah so, ab absolutely you know what, yeah. what's the what's the real driver behind it what are the things that you've either not been able to do before or you know are going to make a real difference to this project being seen as a success within your business and test those i mean I think my final point uh it's Sergio from flexera uh, you know a functional requirements absolutely uh uh, you know, they are important for your testing. Uh, do not, you know, forget proof points about non-functional requirements. Things around scalability, availability, uh, you know, response time. Uh, not all of them can actually be tested in a proof of concept, but you need to have some proof points that your technology will scale up uh, and deliver for the size of the organization you are. A very small one from Phil Nurse, and I, I think it's very much more than just a tool when a, in a proof of concept.
concept. It's all about the customer getting to know the, the company that's doing the proof of concept and also what the outcome should be. It's not just about the success of the tool, it's about other parts of that and the service that is involved as well. Yeah, this, this assuming with Bell Arc, I, I would uh, agree and, and emphasize to the um, prospect or end user to engage with the vendors uh, and uh, consultants, uh, obviously, um, as early as possible and throughout the process, because you know we're we're um, you know we're there to educate. I mean, we're really there to help create. Our goal is to have a successful customer. So you know that's uh, if you engage with us early and often, um, I think the chances of that happening are are, are much 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 better. Yeah, it's uh, Patrick from Microwave, and you know I, I would say um, you know I'd echo all of the comments that people have made there. You know, engage with the vendors. Um, you know, be, be open about what the business goal is, what you're trying to achieve. Um, be open about looking not just at one solution to solve everything, um, but that you might actually need to combine different solutions. So look at how well the solutions will actually work with each other. Um, but uh, you know, I think yeah, be, you know, um, you know, keep 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 an open mind to you know what you want to get from this. Not go into either an RFP process or a proof of concept with a pre-selected idea about the solution you want at the end of it. You've been listening to the ITAM Review podcast. That was Torsten from Matrix Forty Two, Patrick from Iquate, Phil Merson from Concord, Serjan from Flexera Software, and Sumin from Bellark. This has been a preview of our upcoming Tools Day on the 20th of November. Please come and join us if you want to see a shootout of the uh, market's leading sound tools, uh, including a presentation from Stanislav Pavlin from the Vodafone Group. At that Tools Day, we have Bellarc, Brainware, Concord, Flexera, Iquate, Landesk, Matrix 42, and Snow Software, all in the same room, all displaying their wares in the latest in sound technology. So it looks to be a, a fascinating day if you're working in this space. Until next time, thanks for listening.